Greetings and welcome to Tales from the Otherwood, a podcast exploring the folk tales and folklore of the East Midlands and beyond. I'm Dylan Knight, and I'll be your guide as we take one of the many paths in this magical, ever-changing woodland. The roots of the Otherwood find themselves back in the East Midlands, in England's smallest county, Rutland. Rutland's motto is Multum in Paravo, much in little, and never has it been more appropriate than describing one of Rutland's own children, Geoffrey Hudson. This is the tale of the boy in the pie. It's the year 1626, and George Villiers, the very first Duke of Buckingham, is riding on his horse through the town of Oakham. He has a lot in his mind, and is very heavy in his heart. The Duke might be the most handsome cavalier of the King's court, with his quick wit, charming manners, and the fact he is also a very elegant dancer, and yet Villiers found himself troubled. He may very well be the favourite of King Charles I, but even this position was being challenged. You see, King Charles I had recently married Henrietta Maria of France, despite the match being condemned by both the King's court and Parliament. A Protestant country being run by a Protestant king should not have a Catholic as a wife. And yet, that's exactly what happened. Not only was the marriage not doing very well, but Henrietta Maria had taken an instant dislike to the Duke of Buckingham. Now, the King was having to choose the side of either his best friend or his new wife. To make matters worse, Parliament was now accusing the Duke of taking money and bribes to put his own friends in good positions of authority. And there was also the matter of the Duke's failed military exploits. Ordering the English Navy to assist the Battle of La Rochelle, which was lost, and another incident involving the sailors of the English Navy finding supplies of wine and drinking the whole lot. Villiers was not having a good time at all. With the Queen Consort against him, the Duke might find his lands and titles being taken away very soon. He needed something to buy back the favour of the King, and he needed it quickly. And so it was, as he rode through Oakham, something peculiar had taken his attention at the castle gate. Both the castle gate and its door were covered in horseshoes. Some were rusted from age and weathering, and others were quite large and decorative. Yet this wasn't what had caught his attention. What had was a tall, well-built man with sandy hair, holding what looked like some sort of, well, some sort of doll. And it was to this doll the man was explaining the history of the horseshoes. You see that big horseshoe there? The commoner asked. That belonged to King Henry VIII, that did. Old King Henry was visiting Oakham one day, and it was when him and all of his men were going hunting, and they just left the hall, and one of the horseshoes came off King Henry's horse. The king weren't best pleased, and shouted for a farrier to come and replace it at once. He was so impressed with the service he got here in Oakham, 
and beauty of our county that he saw fit that every peer of the realm passing through should forfeit a horseshoe and present it to the lord of the manor. And if they refuse, then the lord can set the bailiff to take the horseshoe by force. Now, this one here, that belonged to Sir Francis Drake, and this one was from, well, you know, the Earl of Doncaster. The man found himself disturbed by the duke, who had approached slowly. I say there, my good man, that isn't quite right. The tradition began much earlier with King Edward IV to celebrate his victory at the Battle of Loosecote Field, when knights fought battles in heavy armour, shield and lance. I do believe I know you, sir. Why, yes, you're Hudson. John Hudson, butcher and one of my bull-baiters for the games. Your grace, said the now-identified John Hudson, who, although bowing, took great pains to place his doll on the ground. The duke looked at the doll and saw that this was no toy. It was a child, a very, very little boy. The duke smiled, got down from his horse, and doffed his feather hat to the young boy. And who might this young man be? he asked. My name's Geoffrey Hudson, your grace, said the boy. He was very tiny. He couldn't have been more than just over a foot in height. I see. And how old are you, young master Geoffrey? Please, sir, I'm nearly seven years old, replied the boy. Are you really? Extraordinary. Well then, young Master Geoffrey, your father and I have something to discuss. And how about you, uh, see if you can count all those horseshoes over there, all right? There's a good lad. It isn't known what exactly was said between the Duke and John Hudson, but it did end with young Geoffrey saying goodbye to both his father and mother, his brothers and sister, who lived in their home in the shambles and travelling with the duke on his horse to the duke's country home, the mansion on Burley-on-the-Hill. Geoffrey Hudson had only ever heard about the mansion before, and he felt a mixture of sadness for leaving his family behind, embarrassment at being stared at by the household servants and what appeared to be the family of the duke, and wonder at the very huge, beautiful house standing before him. Geoffrey found himself being presented to the Duchess as a wonder of nature, as the Duke described him. The Duchess looked at the child and examined him. He was indeed small, standing at only 18 inches tall. He had long blonde hair and big brown eyes that showed a potential of good thinking and quick wit. The Duchess looked at his arms and legs, body and head, everything seemed in perfect proportion to the boy's size. And she asked him questions, the same questions that the Duke asked earlier, with the addition of if he missed his family. He was about to reply that he did, when the Duchess picked him up and squealed with delight, saying, It'll all be well, Geoffrey, you're going to live with us now. A few months went by, and Geoffrey was looked after very well. They fed him, 
bathed him and cut his hair so it only just brushed above his neck. And although the Villiers family were very nice to him, he caught on quickly that he was simply their pet. Geoffrey was polite and friendly enough, and yet both the Duke and Duchess treated him like a shiny bauble or a, a favourite dog. And today, something was happening. Geoffrey found himself measured and even had his head size determined, especially when the Duke let him try on a military helmet, which was far too big and far too heavy for him. Preparations were being made for going somewhere, and Geoffrey found himself in a horse-drawn carriage with the whole Villiers family. It took them days, but they had now reached London. Geoffrey had become accustomed to the countryside quiet of Burley-on-the-Hill, and he found London a much different place. It was busy, it was loud, and it had so many smells as they passed through. If Geoffrey had been impressed with the country mansion, nothing prepared him for the Duke's London home, York House. With its grand design, beautiful statues and paintings inside, and even access to the River Thames, Geoffrey had never imagined how rich the Villiers were, considering where he came from himself. That night, the family were preparing their home to receive both King Charles I and Henrietta the Maria the next evening. The Duke had summoned Geoffrey and wanted to show him something. The Duke asked Geoffrey to try on a suit of armour and a helmet. Seeing they were for him, Geoffrey got very excited and allowed the Duke to dress him up. After seeing the armour fitted Geoffrey perfectly, the Duke smiled, that winning, charming smile of his, and he said to Geoffrey, I'm very glad you like it. Now, here's what is going to happen tomorrow. The next evening saw the Duke and Duchess welcome the King and Queen Consort to their luxurious home. There were games played, there were fireworks in the huge garden, and there was a great feast and plenty of wines being drunk. Everyone was having a very good time. The king and queen consort found themselves presented with a huge dish with a very large amount of pastry on top. The duke, while smiling that winning, charming smile of his, presented Henrietta Maria with a decorative knife and asked, Would Her Majesty care to sample our pie? It is a local delicacy from Rutland. Henrietta Maria smiled, and wonder was in her eyes, not knowing where to cut the pastry, and just as she was about to cut the pie, the pastry punched itself open. A little hand came out first, and then another, until a small helmeted head came out and climbed out of the pie, crust going everywhere, and on to the table walked and stood the tiniest little soldier. He stood before the king and the queen consort in his little helmet and breastplate and a suit of blue clothing, and saying as loud as he could, God save the king and queen, and finished with a little bow. Both King Charles and Henrietta Maria thought that this was hilarious and applauded the little boy and the duke and duchess. Geoffrey, to everyone's delight, started parading around on the table and making everyone laugh. 
and Henrietta Maria spoke with Geoffrey and absolutely loved him. So much so, she even asked the Duke and Duchess if she could keep him and take him home. The Duke and Duchess looked at each other knowingly. Everything had gone according to plan. That night, Geoffrey said his farewells to the Villiers family and was taken to join King Charles I and Henrietta Maria in their home at Denmark House. As for what became of the boy in the pie and his time with royalty, we will find out the next time we cover Rutland. Right. Storytelling is thirsty work. Time for a cup of tea, I think. Put on the kettle or crack open your flask. It's time for a drink and a chat. Firstly, I'd like to apologise for the lateness of this episode, uh, mainly when I was editing the first run and trying to launch it on time, I found that the actual recording files had become corrupted somehow, so I had to start everything and record everything all over again. So, that goes on to the second point, which is that this story actually contains mention of King Charles I. And it just so happens that this weekend we see the coronation of King Charles III, and that is a complete coincidence. So, without further ado... Let's carry on with the chat of The Boy in the Pie. I first came across a version of this tale as The Duke Entertains in Folk Tales of the East Midlands, collected by Eric Swift, published in 1954. It's also this version that includes the horseshoes, and we'll talk more about that in a bit. The story of Geoffrey Hudson, believe it or not, is actually true. He was born in Oakham on June the 14th, 1619. He had three other brothers and one half-sister, all of whom grew to typical adult height and weight. Geoffrey, however, only grew as tall as somewhere between 18 and 19 inches. Although small as he was, he led an extraordinary life. After reading about his history... I wanted to honour Geoffrey Hudson's memory by splitting his life story into four separate tales. The reason for this is because I didn't want to simply tell the tale of the boy in the pie and leave it at that, and then condense Hudson's actual life into an essay in the chat part of my podcast. To me, it felt if I did this, it would be a great disservice to the memory of the man, a man who was given as a gift to royalty when he was a child, a man who became friends with a queen and who faced pirates and the English Civil War and was later accused of conspiracy, eventually sadly dying a pauper. As a storyteller, I can't help but want to share Geoffrey Hudson's incredible part in history with all my listeners and give the memory of this fascinating individual the respect he deserved. And so, with The Boy in the Pie being the first of these tales, I shall tell three more of Geoffrey Hudson, one tale for the next three times we cover Rutland. For now, though, 
as this month's tale began in Oakham, it's to Oakham we return as we draw our attention to something that was mentioned in the earlier part of the story. The horseshoes in the castle gate. Despite the fact there is no mention of any direct connection between Geoffrey Hudson and the horseshoes on the gate to Oakham Castle, I feel that Eric Swift included this detail into his version to give an example of the local Rutland tradition, and as Tales of the Otherwood is all about exploring the folk tales and folklore of the East Midlands and beyond, how could I resist? Local tradition has it that any of the peers of the realm, and this includes nobles such as dukes and earls, viscounts, basically anyone with a title, even bishops, who were travelling through Oakham for the first time, were obliged to gift one of their horseshoes to the lord of the manor. If they refused to partake of this token gesture, they were then offered a sum of money as compensation for the horseshoe, and should that be refused, then the bailiff was quite within his rights to forcibly remove one of the shoes from the horse. According to the official Oakham Castle website, no one knows when or whom started the tradition, but the oldest horseshoe is said to have been given by King Edward IV in 1470, and there are at least 230. Most are quite large and decorative, and have the name and date of their donors painted on them, and are now kept inside the surviving hall. Originally, the tradition first had it that the horseshoes were nailed to the castle gate and to the door outside, but years of wind and rain had worn away their features and paintwork. One source from 1892 goes to say the tradition began during the reign of Henry II as a token of respect for Walkerlin de Ferris, for whom the Great Hall was built for in the first place during the 12th century, which was when Richard I was king. The ancestor of Walkerlin de Ferris was master of horse for William the Conqueror, and the horseshoe was included in the Ferrer's coat of arms. As time moved on, the horseshoes became bigger and more elaborate. It became en vogue amongst the peers of the realm to show they wouldn't just donate a horseshoe, they would have the biggest, brightest made to show off their status. Interestingly enough, there aren't many from the time of Elizabeth I, not because there weren't any donated, but because they were taken down and melted for ammunition during World War II. Whenever the tradition started, and whoever started it, it stands as a testament to Rutland's proud equestrian heritage, and if the horseshoe collection wasn't enough, it is also the tradition of the county to have them hanging upside down, the tips facing downwards, and the archway facing upwards. In the rest of the UK, Horseshoes are traditionally hung above doorways with the tips facing upwards, and this way allowing the look of the household to build up. However, Rutland tradition has it that hanging the horseshoe tips down means that the look pours onto the person walking underneath them. It also means that the devil can't make his seat inside the horseshoe's arch. Should you ever go to visit Oakham Castle, they're normally closed on Tuesdays, and it's a good idea to contact them first, as weddings often take place there, as well as ceremonial court proceedings. And whatever the month of May means for you, I wish you all a Merry May time.
Thank you very much for listening. However you found this podcast, please feel free to follow and write a review. And don't forget, the other wood isn't just where I am, it's where you are too. Until next time, take care.